0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: And today we're rolling out uh, an older episode we did, uh, Peniel Optics, My Third Eye. Uh, We think it's a really fascinating one. We think you might enjoy it for the first time or for the second time if you listen to it uh, during its initial airing.
0: Yeah, and uh, another reason why we wanted to bring it out today is because Robert's third eye has been winking all day at people. And so we thought, yep, this is it's time. This is what the eye wants.
1: Yeah, yeah, my uh, my flesh opened up. It's uh it keeps making weird awkward eye contact with people. I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, I guess an eye patch is in order. We'll see how it goes.
0: It doesn't help, though, that you put those false eyelashes on it.
1: Well, you know, I want it to look pretty because that's one of them. I mean, you, know, you want it to, to blend in with the other eyes. You don't want it to feel left out.
0: That's true. All right. We hope that you guys enjoy this. All right. So, obviously, we're going to talk about the pineal gland, and the, also called the third eye.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. So the third eye. For, for those of you who have not been exposed to it, well, we're going to start out with just a brief discussion about the non-scientific idea of the third eye. That being that there is this, uh, we have the the two eyes with which we see the world, but that buried inside us there is this third eye that if we are to if we open it we can see something that isn't there or something that is hidden from our normal perceptions of the world that we we will be able to see, uh, the spiritual aspects of the world around us or see into the future or see into the now. Um, it, it really depends on who's doing the talking, uh, as to what a third eye actually consists of. You see, you see various takes on this in Hinduism. Um, if you've ever looked at any uh, Hindu iconography, then you've you've no doubt seen like the, the flaming eye of uh, um, of uh, of Shiva that uh, that burns and shoots out flames. Uh, you, uh, if you're familiar with uh, with with yoga, for instance, you probably know of the Ajna chakra. This is uh, positioned supposedly positioned in the brain, right behind the eyebrow center. And this involves, uh, you know, future sight, clear sight, presence, or even occult powers, depending on who, again, is is doing the talking. Uh, you see, uh, you see the third eye in uh, Kabbalah, in uh, Taoism, in various New Age ideas, and uh, and you know, even in uh, uh, heavy metal lyrics from time to time as well.
0: Also, Gwen Stefani.
1: Gwen Stefani. Well, That's you one? know,
0: she used to wear the bindi all the, the bindi. time.
1: Yeah, the bindi is uh, a reference uh, to to the, the third eye and to the, and to the, the chakra and all that um, so yeah anytime someone's wearing a bindi, they may not know it they might just be wearing it for purely uh, uh, you know ornamental reasons but, uh, but there is this idea of, of the third eye buried in that
0: What I think is so fascinating about this topic is that the third eye has been something that has been symbolic to us, right? This idea of Mm -hmm. seeing and seeing all, but really it does have roots in vision, and we will talk about that uh, via the pineal gland. Um, So what is cool about this is that somehow humans had sort of an inkling that this third eye... Um, might have actually been something within their own brains that was giving them some sort of insight or sensorial experience, and we 'll talk more about that in a bit
1: yeah so first let's uh, let's back up just a little bit about uh, about the pineal gland and its history and its connotations uh, and associations with the idea of a third eye and spiritual insight and all of this if you go back in time to around two thousand ten a d you had this uh, man by the name of Galen. Uh, Greek medical doctor, philosopher, spent most of his time in Rome, and uh, he wrote on, on a number of things, but he his writings dominated medical thinking, like on up until the seventeenth century, and he did discuss the pineal gland in his eighth book uh, of his uh, anatomical work on the usefulness of the parts of the body, and uh, he was really more interested in the pineal gland than than anyone um, at that time, or for you know for years and years afterwards. Now this was a time. When uh, when there, there was this idea that uh, the ventricles and the brain flowed with something called psychic pneuma, and pneuma is supposedly the breath of life in Stoic philosophy, it's this uh, fine, vaporous substance uh, that uh, Galen described as the first instrument of the soul. Okay, so imagine these uh, these these old thinkers and uh, and philosophers, and uh, you know they're they're trying to understand how the world works, how the human body works. Um, they're working with limited tools, though, uh, at their disposal, and and they have only the knowledge that came before them with which to understand it, right? So, they they have this idea of psychic pneuma in their mind, and they're poking around in uh, uh, the brain of a, of a corpse to see what they can find and see what seems to do what. So when uh, when Galen looked at the pineal and uh, and he in his book he de- he describes the pineal and talks about its resemblance in shape and size to nuts found in the cones of, of the stone pine, and that's mm-hmm. where we get the name pineal pine. Uh, think about
0: that next time you have pine nuts yeah, in your about pasta. That.
1: Yeah. So he's poking around in the brain, finds the pineal gland, uh, but he doesn't see it as really involving any of this pneuma, any of this uh, spiritual stuff, because he notices that it is outside, it's on the outside of the brain, mm-hmm. and he thinks that the the part of the brain that's going to be involved in regulating psychic pneuma is going to be uh, uh, something that we call the vermis superior uh, cerebelli, uh, in the cerebellum, uh, and, and he figured that was much more... Proper to play to play that role, mm-hmm. but uh, okay. So after his death, again, his his work continues to remain important. Uh, it, it in medieval texts it is misinterpreted a few times, mm-hmm. and it eventually the idea that the pineal gland is involved with the human spirit um, and and our spiritual essence resurfaces. And,
0: and it, that's a long run, by the way, right, yeah. up to the 17th century.
1: Yeah, indeed. I mean, you know, and certainly these classical thinkers, I mean, many of them are still, we still hold them up high today. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, they were they were groundbreakers. So the 17th century rolls around. And we have a guy named Rene Descartes, who most people are familiar with, right, because what's his famous quote? I
0: think, therefore I am.
1: Yes. Yeah. Easy to remember bec- for me because was, there was a Monty Python song about philosophers, the Australian Philosopher's Song.
0: There's a really bad joke too about how a waiter asks him if if uh, he would like dessert, and he yeah. says, "I think not," and then Uh-oh. he keels over.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so René Descartes is is you know primarily known for his contributions to mathematics and philosophy, but he was also really interested in anatomy and, psych- and uh, in psychology as well. So he ends up doing a lot of thinking about. What it is to be human, and then the the biological aspect of that. Mm -hmm. And in this book, The Treaties of Man, he describes a conceptual model of a human, which consists of two parts body and soul. So Descartes works up this theory that the pineal gland is the seat of the senses communis. In other words, it's the input, it's where the input of the senses are bound into an understanding of the world. So we see it involved, according to Descartes, in sensation, imagination, memory, and uh, bodily movement. Now, Descartes' theory would, would go on to be very important. A lot of people would really take this and run with it because he's an important man saying some really awesome things about uh, this little tiny pine nut in our, uh, in our heads. However, uh, it's important to note that he was not really—he was, wasn't even really working with the best uh, anatomical and uh, physiological assumptions of the time. So he's, kind, he's really kind of going off in his own direction on this. But it continues to be important. Uh, towards the end of the 19th century, you see Madame uh, Blavatsky, the founder of Theosophy, and she really gets into the idea of the third eye um, and, and, and uh, the pineal, and compares it uh, to the eye of Shiva. And uh, she really argues that the pineal gland is an atrophied organ of spiritual vision, which, again, as we've discussed, there's this idea of this third eye hidden inside us that allows us some sort of sight that we have forgotten and that can on some level be uh, attained again.
0: Okay. So, again, what I find really interesting about that is that there are seeds of truth to that yes. in terms of the tissues of the pineal gland. And, again, we'll talk about that more mm-hmm. in more scientific terms, but this inkling that this there's this uh, sensory perception center mm-hmm. in the pineal gland is correct.
1: Yeah, and, and you can also uh, get behind the idea that there is an ancient form of sight involved in the pineal gland. Some of the theories back that up as well. But it's not attuned with the spirit, per se. Uh, by the end of the podcast, we'll come back around to an inkling of some of those ideas. But but for the most part, from here on in, put the spiritual world behind you, because it's all going to be about seeing and evolution. So, if we crack open the skull, as, uh, as Galen did... Uh, And we take a look at the pineal. What are we going to see? We're going to see a small organ, shaped like a pine nut. And it's located on the midline, attached to the posterior end of the roof of the third ventricle in the brain. Now, in a human, it's roughly a centimeter in length. It Mm -hmm. varies. And uh, it is composed of pinealocytes and glial cells. And in older animals, the uh, pineal often contains brain sand, which are just calcium deposits. But I do love the idea of brain sand.
0: (laughs) Um, yeah, it is essentially an endocrine organ, mm. right? But I did want to mention that when the human embryo is in the earliest stage of development, the cells that will form the pineal gland have the potential known as the differential, excuse me, differential potential to become eye cells, uh, such as lens, epithelial layer, or retina neuron cells. So in other words, it has all the ingredients to make a brand new eye, but it forms into this endocrine organ, which produces the hormone melatonin.
1: Yeah, and again, at a cellular level, it is astonishingly similar to the eye, um, particularly to the cellular structure of the retina. So it's not just a thing where someone found it, and they're like, oh, it kind of looks like an eye, because it really doesn't really look like an eye. But but at at a cellular level, and again... uh, in early in its development, we see the connections to our actual eyes.
0: Yeah, and there's a great connection to, as you say, evolution when we look at the reason for this, why this pineal gland exists. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit more about the melatonin yes. um, and its role because what we have found is that the human pineal gland regulates the rhythm that beats out of the biological clocks of ourselves by secreting melatonin uh, according to light stimulus received through the eyes and from the skin as well as other cells. So in the morning, the level of melatonin secreted is low. In the evening, it's high. And then the benefit of exposure to natural light in the morning is that the, the secretion of melatonin is curbed, enabling the body to keep its daily rhythm on track. Now, that seems kind of straightforward and so what, but that's kind of a big uh, that's a big deal production going on.
1: Yeah, and we've talked before about the importance of melatonin and serotonin in, in the human mind and the human body. I mean, it's, it has everything to do with our, our biological patterns, It ha- with our 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 level of uh, contentment with the world uh, and uh, and certainly it's come up in our discussions of various uh um psychedelic properties as well
0: yeah and if you think about the pineal gland too, it's kind of like the control tower of the body trying to really sense to what degree it needs to secrete the melatonin. Remember that it's getting these cues from skin cells, other cells in the body, um, as well as the eye.
1: Yeah, you can think of it as a transducer, okay? The pineal transduces signals from the sympathetic nerve system into a hormonal signal. So it's like a you know, if you're assembling the human body, you, you uh, say out of a, an IKEA kit, uh, and you might see the pineal in its own little uh, little plastic bag there, mm-hmm. uh, and you might well leave it out during the uh, confusing assembly process. But uh, you would definitely notice the, that result. That is a, that is an important little nut to screw into the finished works.
0: That's right. Even with that tiny little tiny little uh, what is that supposed to be? I guess like a um, screwdriver or the
1: Allen wrench. Li- the yeah. Allen wrench yeah.
0: looking thing. That's the thing is crazy. Yeah. Um, that that has got to be the most frustrating tool in existence. Um, I wanted to mention that in animals, the pineal gland is really paramount to uh, reproductive functions mm-hmm. since the detection of increased light, let's say in the spring by the pineal gland, adjusts the secretion of melatonin. And then that sends this whole symphony of cues to the animal's body to begin preparing for the breeding season. So if you look at horses and sheep, this involves a hypothalamus secreting the anterior pituitary h- hormones, which then essentially send out yep, I'm going to say it, gonadotropin. And uh, this is a hormone aimed at bolstering the, the animal's gonads and getting them ready for breeding.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I, I read a bit where it said that in, when you're breeding sheep, um, sheep that normally breed only once a year can be induced to uh, into two breeding seasons if you uh, dose them up with melatonin.
0: Yep, exactly. And we've seen this in examples uh, with other animals, too, as well. Um, so... I wanted to mention this because I think this is really interesting. Um, this role of melatonin. Again, we just think of it as, well, it helps us to sleep and, um, you know, have this wakefulness and not have wakefulness. But uh, it, I read this really very interesting study about how malfunctioning circadian rhythm genes could be the basis for bipolar disorder in children uh many of whom are plagued with the onset of sleep disorders at an early age. Um, and this is really a big detail that sets bipolar disorder apart from ADHD in kids. Yeah. Um, this sort of messed up sleep cycle or sleep disorders. Uh RORN genes are expressed in the eye, brain, and pineal gland. And in a study of 152 bipolar children and 140 children as a control, uh, these children obviously were not bipolar or thought to be, Psychiatrist Alexander Nicoluscu of Indiana University found four alterations to the RORB gene that were positively associated with being bipolar. So RORB expression is known to change as a function of the circadian rhythm in some tissues, and mice without the gene exhibit circadian rhythm abnormalities. So what they began to see is that uh this this correlation with melatonin and with uh, disorders like this are are hand in hand and Nicolescu says that every time we investigate some abnormality of molecular machinery linked to the clock genes we find an association with bipolar disorder so obviously there needs to be more research but it shows promise in the treatment and that researchers have been on the right path in strictly regulating a bipolar patient's sleep schedule to improve extreme mood cycles that you see in bipolar disorder again here's this pineal gland uh the control tower but you know trying to give out the signals to the body and it shows that something like this can really sort of go awry if if it's not all regulated.
1: So I know what you're wondering, where does it come from? The pineal gland. How do how do we end up with this this thing that is uh, in many ways in in many interpretations a kind of primitive eye buried in the center of our skull without any actual um, chance to glimpse the light. It ends up being this is mere transducer. Well, it's a good question, and I'm glad you asked it, because because uh, that's what we're going <laughs> to talk about. You. So this really gets down to questions of the evolution of the human eye and the evolution of sight. And, uh, and when you start thinking about ocular evolution, we're talking about really old business here, like... Really important, like when you're starting a business. Like, what are some of the first things you have to have? Right, you've got to have you got to have the building, you got to have the bathroom, and the first people you hire. Maybe you know you've, you've you got to have the key people on staff before you staff up from there. Mm-hmm. So, when we're talking about the development of of the eye, we're talking about some very old business, and a lot of stuff ends up built up around it. So it it, it makes sense when we start talking about uh, the ramifications of of melatonin levels on all these varying levels of of, of animal activity because it's, it's root down to the to some of the, the earliest development. So the eye has been around for a while. And if you look at the eye of a human, the eye of a fish, they're not all that different. So it, it goes back a long ways in evolution. But if you go back far enough in our development, you find a cyclops. Uh, or more specifically, you find something called a lancelet. And uh, these are primitive creatures. They're still around today. And they have just one eye. Mm-hmm. Now, a couple of the main theories about the uh, pineal evolution come down to th- this idea of, uh, of developing two eyes from one. All right? So, back in the day, simple organisms, one eye, and then as evolution progresses, this eye divides into left and right.
0: Now, and this is all predicated on the primordial brain. Like this yes. primitive brain that's just the solid mass, that's a big ball. It hasn't divided yet into the right and left hemispheres.
1: Yeah, so the brain divides into two, and then... From one eye we get to two eyes. Now, mm-hmm. and then there, there, you can various takes on which came first, chicken or egg. Does the brain split because the eye splits or does, does, does the eye split because the brain splits? Um, you can sort of go either ways on that. Uh, two particularly interesting, uh, theories that stem from that. First of all, there's one here from Professor Masasuki Araki of Nara Women's University. And Professor Araki believes that the third eye comes into being during the transition from one eye to two. The position that uh, Araki's describing is that the, the single eye pulls to the left and right mm-hmm. and uh, and divided. Uh, an eye remains in the spot where the single eye had originally been. So the third eye then is not the third to be created, but the first, the original. Okay. So,
0: so it. Uh, so we. What we think of as the third eye is essentially the tissue, the prim- big primordial tissue. Yeah,
1: primordial eye, really. Yeah. Like right. Very simple eye.
0: Right. That had. That was able to, then sort of secrete itself back into our brains a bit.
1: Yeah, because we've discussed with the way the human body works. It's something doesn't just become useless overnight and fall off of us. <laughs> uh, you know, it, stuff gets tucked sometimes. Away. Sometimes. Well, sometimes, but, but, but. But for for the most part, things get tucked away. Things get uh, get uh, get hidden in case they're used later. Our body can be sort of a hoarder. In that example, another theory comes to us from David Klein, PhD, and uh, he and he works for the National Institute of Health. Um, he has this theory that uh, it all comes down to um, to melatonin uh, again in in the, the head in the brain, uh, and then the idea here is that roughly 500 million years ago the ancestors of today's animals became dependent on melatonin as a signal of darkness. Uh, And as the need for more and more melatonin grows, the pineal gland develops as a structure separate from the eyes to keep the toxic substances um, needed to make melatonin away from sensitive eye tissue. That's right, because
0: this whole process of rhodopsin and all other chemicals sort of interacting with one another, right? And the more distance you have, the better Um, in this Making of melatonin. Right. So if you have that uh, distance, then you are making sure that your eyes are not going to be affected by the chemical. Right. That's sort of like the really very shallow dive on that. But I kind of feel like both of them are correct. Because if you have this, you know, primitive brain that's just a ball that then, uh, evolves into this right and left hemisphere, and then you've got the tissue, well, as you say, the, the body is really good at saying, okay, hey, you sitting around, why don't you do something? Why yeah, don't let's you become- start
1: dumping some, uh, some toxic uh, stuff in there and moving <laughs> yeah. up some melatonin. Yeah. We're not using that room for anything. So we see the same thing with our office here. Right. We only have so much room to work with, and if an, if an, and if an office goes empty for too long, the uh, video department... We'll move some stuff in there and start filming some sk- some skits and segments.
0: The void gets filled. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then they all, you know, of course, then someone is the control tower of the light source in all of the offices, yeah. right? <laughs> Much <laughs> like the pineal gland, exactly. controlling the to what degree we are exposed to them. Um, so, yeah, I think those are, are, I think it's so fascinating to, to see how the human body can adapt like that. Um, and not just the human body, but if you look at the lancelet, this, this really primitive creature, mm-hmm. how the, the beginnings of that show how this this evolvement of our eye systems and our pineal gland all sort of came together.
1: Yeah. Now, when I was describing um, uh, Iraqi's uh, theory, and you're imagining this one eye in the middle of a a head. I ended up imagining a human face. Um, well, actually, your face, since it's the one I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Imagining an eye in the center of your head, and then the two eyes coming out, and then this uh, this primordial eye receding. So you you may be wondering, well, is there ever a time when you have three eyes, three or at least three um, ocular units on the face? And yes, as we're going to discuss after a break, asked. we're glad you asked because we're going to discuss after this quick break. Uh, there are plenty of animals around today which do which do have. They're two uh, highly evolved eyes. And then also this remnant eye, this uh, uh, parietal eye, which is uh, very closely uh, uh, connected to everything we're talking about. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more pinealoptics.
0: Okay, we're back. the parietal eye. Now if we look to some examples in nature, we can get a fine, fine feeling for what this parietal eye does.
1: Yes. Now we're not again, we're not talking about you look at the face and you see three distinct eyeballs. But if you look at uh, certain uh, lower vertebrates such as fish and lizards, uh, you'll actually see this kind of uh, you could almost mistake it for some sort of like gray pimple. Uh, this this kind of gray little dot, gray little slit, Uh, Around the forehead, and that is this parietal eye. Um, They typically, like I say, it's a gray oval, and uh, the animals don't actually see out of this Mm -hmm. structure. Like they can't, they 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 can't look out of it. Like they're they're not. You don't see
0: an eyeball in it, right?
1: And since data is not going in it and then forming a picture, that's what the other eyes are doing. Mm -hmm. This uh, eye, the parietal eye, is more. It's it's photosensitive, and it does influence circadian rhythm. But it's unable to capture uh, images, and it's believed that it senses light and regulates body temperature and hormonal balance. So in a way, you can think of it, and we'll discuss this a little more here, it it is an eye that sees only one thing and that it sees what time it is. It sees where, if you can even apply a concept like time Mm -hmm. to, uh, to an animal, but it can see where it is in the cycle of night and day.
0: Yeah, and what I think is really cool about it is that it does have this sense of passing of time uh, through its uh, parietal eye and these two kinds of neurons. So unlike the human eye, which makes use of five different kinds of neurons called photoreceptors to analyze light, the parietal eye has only two, as I said, but these two neurons um, help frogs, fish, and lizards figure out what time it is. Um, This is from Seed Magazine's article, The Secrets in the Third Eye. The comparison of the color signals now begin at the photoreceptor rather than in the retinal neurons as in the regular human eye. So when this happens, the photoreceptors in the parietal eye are able to give information about the passage of time because, and this is key, the color spectrum changes over time during the day. So the signal that comes out of the photoreceptor is sort of a readout of what time it is, which is very cool. I mean, this is sort of a superpower that we don't possess, even if we do have pocket watches. Yeah. Pocket watches, but it's like the 19th century now.
1: Yeah, and this parietal eye is often retained in burrowing lizards, uh, and the idea here is that these are animals that are occasionally exposed to light, and the uh, parietal eye is a more suitable photoreceptor for a burrower.
0: Right, and um, that's what I think is really cool about these parietal eyes is that they do differ in a paper by Gundy and Wurtz entitled Parietal Eye Pineal Morphology in Lizards and Its Physiological Implications. uh, They looked at 75 species of lizards in their parietal eyes, and they found that there were seven different morphological types. Um, Some of these types were the lateral parietal eye, the baroad eye, eye, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. and this is my favorite, a finger-like projection that extends toward the parietal eye. So Uh, From the pineal inside
1: mm, the head, yeah. Yeah,
0: and this actually allows for the maximal absorption of light, this sort of configuration.
1: Yeah, so it's like the the parietal eye and the pineal gland sort of reaching to touch each other, like uh, like Adam and and uh, and God on the Sistine Chapel, right?
0: Oh, I hope someone. Re- I really hope someone <laughs> paints that. That would be a lovely. Surely, paint.
1: that's on the side of a van somewhere. <laughs> or, or Alex Gray has done it. This seems like a great Alex Gray topic right there. Oh, yeah. So yeah, There's a lot of really cool study, especially in, in, lizards are a great way to study the parietal eye. And they found a, a lot of interesting stuff about the, the evolution of, of the parietal eye and uh, the evolutionary uh, conjunction between invertebrate and vertebrate ways of seeing color. Uh, for instance, John Hopkins University study uh, found two pigments in the parietal eye of the side-blotched lizard, uh, two different structures of protein communication. One of these is a pigment communicated with a transducin-like protein called... Uh, as vertebrates use. Another is a pigment that uses go-protein. It's an invertebrate uh, way of uh, of seeing. So the theory here is that early on, this go-protein, this was the norm. And then as evolution progresses, uh, transducin pathway developed... And then as as it progresses even further, you uh, move up to the lateral eyes, which are actually very highly specialized structures that allow us to have depth reception. And then the go pathway is dropped, and we retain only the translucent pathway. So, again, we see in the parietal eye an ancient form of seeing, an ancient way of just barely peeking um, out from the the darkness of consciousness into the light of the world.
0: That's beautiful. Well... Uh, all right. So we uh, we couldn't tidy up the rest of this podcast without making a mention of um, hallucinogens, right? Because we've been yes. really heavy into them as a topic lately. Um, so what do hallucinogens have to do with the pineal gland in the third eye, other than people feeling like they have tapped into them when they're on hallucinogens?
1: Yeah, we have a guy by the name of Rick Strassman, MD, who uh, researched the hypothetical and as yet unproven connection between the pineal gland and the production of DMT. Uh at first he was very interested in the pineal gland and then he got uh very interested in uh, DMT. He actually uh, performed uh, the first uh new human studies with psychedelic drugs in the US in over 20 years back in 1990 uh, between 1990 and 1995 when he was uh he dosed about 60 volunteers with DMT. Uh eventually ended up canceling the research because he grew too concerned about the the, the negative effects uh, that some of these uh, individuals were, were having on these trips, uh, mm-hmm. seeing some frightening things, uh, lizard men, uh, godlike beings, freaking out as they dissolve into light, that kind of thing, uh, which, as we discussed in our psychedelic episodes, uh, can certainly happen. But he he did formulate a number of just kind of really... Out there, ideas. I mean, from the you you read what the man has written, and he's not a complete loon or anything. I don't want to paint him like that. But he has some very far-reaching ideas about. What, uh, the pineal gland might consist of and what it's doing. And, and he gets into some, uh, some really interesting territory where he's, uh, entertaining the notion that DMT actually affects the brain's ability to receive information, not just interpret and generate it, and that it can potentially allow us to perceive dark matter and parallel universes. So, it's uh, it's all very the- uh, theoretical. Um, you know, don't take that to the bank. But uh, but I, I do find it really really interesting.
0: It is interesting. I mean, it's certainly an extrapolation on um, what uh, Nobel laureate Julius Axelrod found is that the brain does have naturally occurring trace amounts um, of DMT in the brain, mm-hmm. and then some people have taken this to say the pineal brain is is um, where it's made and. Perhaps there's some sort of um,
1: connection there. Connection
0: between psychosis and even hallucinogens, uh, or or I should say, hallucinations. But again, a lot of this is all um, unproven at this point. We just all we know for sure is trace amounts that are naturally occurring in the brain of DMT. Yeah, Uh, DMT being this hallucinogenic substance.
1: Yeah. To what extent are we coming back around to the same mistake of attributing spiritual importance? to this uh, little nut in the brain or are we coming around to some truth about it that it is I mean obviously it has something that it has it has stuff to do with the way that we sense and understand the world mm-hmm. but to what degree so
0: exactly yeah uh, you know we we didn't talk about uh, the third eye as being a Freemason symbol
1: oh of course yes the um, oh what the, the name for it at the, the top of the dollar the the, the triangle with the eye
0: yeah yeah Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the third eye, but whatever. Yeah, we've we've seen that in, it's in the U.S. Great Seal on yeah. the dollar bill. And, of course, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists who will point to that dollar bill and say that, you know, that's, that's, that's the work of Freemasons. Um, but from what I understand, Ben Franklin, who was the only Freemason who worked on the currency at that time, mm-hmm. uh, proposed a design, and it did not have that third eye in it. Huh. So also, uh, that dollar bill third eye symbol... Was in use, I think, uh, far, maybe like a decade or more before the Freemasons even began to use it.
1: The Eye of Providence. That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And actually, if you want to know more about that, you should totally check out stuff they don't want you to know because yeah. they, they, uh, do some deep dives into that territory. And
1: I really need to look it up because I was not familiar with the, the term Eye of Providence, uh, till like just a couple of weeks ago. I was in yoga and this is going to sound hippy dippy, but, uh, during uh, Shavasana, I saw this, uh,
0: that's when you're in rest, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. I saw this, this triangle, like a pulsating triangle. Dude. it seemed like it might be God or something, you know? The, like, that was the kind of vibe I was getting off of it. So afterwards, I was like, huh, I wonder if there are any ideas out there of like, that interpret God or a divine being as like a, like a, a triangle, you know? Like in a very geometric, like, Stripped down since, and that was the closest thing I could find. So. It
0: was like Shiva's back call.
1: Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, I only
0: can... the yogi is going to laugh at that one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, and I should also mention that uh, one of the things that got me into this uh, particular podcast is I was thinking back to the old uh, horror movie um, From Beyond, which was based on a Lovecraft story, and that has a lot to do with monsters with pineal glands that end up poking out of their head and squirming around like worms, and it's a lot of fun. You have a great
0: <laughs> blog post on that.
1: Yeah, yeah, you can check it out. I do the Monster of the Week deal when I have, uh, when I have time. Alright, so there you have it. We hope you enjoyed this classic episode. As always, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the past episodes, all the blog posts, all the videos, and links out to our various social media accounts.
0: And if you have thoughts, send them our way. You can do that by emailing us at BlowTheMindHowStuffWorks.com.